Right, and good morning, Ridge Point Church. How you doing this morning? <laughs> that was okay. That was like half-hearted. Let's try it one more time. How are you doing this morning? Good, man. We're glad to see you. Turn to the person next to you, give them a high five, and say, we're really glad to see you this morning, because we are, we are glad that you're here. As we're wrapping up the series, we've been dealing with some issues the church is facing in our culture. We'll get to all that in a second. Before we talk about the issues, let me talk about some really cool things that have been taking place. Josh already alluded to some of this, but, but I kid you not, I could say this a lot throughout our, our calendar year. But I think the past two and a half or three weeks have been some of my favorite, uh, maybe in the history of Rich Point Church, some really cool things have been taking place. Uh, our, our Camp RPC, our version of VBS, wrapped up just a couple of weeks ago. The team did an incredible job, went all out. The energy level was, was super high. Uh, a bunch of kids here was really, really cool. After that, we were wrapping up the Habitat House, doing the work that was needed to be done there, uh, right into our Bass Tournament a couple of weeks, or last weekend and raised a lot of money for our trip, blew us away with overwhelming response of, of boats signed up for that, and helped raise money for our trip to Honduras coming up this November. Uh, and then Tuesday night, we already saw the pictures up there of the Habitat House. And let me share just a short story from that. Uh, but we were there, and it was the first time we've partnered with them, and, and they kind of uh, joked around when we were there. They kind of told the story about when we sat down with them, a lot of you have been part of, of, of us working the past on Day of Service projects. So we kind of went into this saying, hey, we'll come in and sign up for, for a day and bring a whole bunch of people. And, and Julie came and said, that would be awesome, but what if you partnered with us from beginning to end, which was like a three and a half or four month long process. And I said, well, we've never done that before, but we're willing to try. Uh, and the amount of people that served throughout that was really powerful. I was blown away seeing the, the, the dedication service itself. Habitat was much more biblically based than I thought. It was really uh, the focus on Christ throughout the whole dedication ceremony. Uh, they invited me to come pray for the beginning of the dedication, but also to present a family Bible to the family, which was really cool. But then what, what kind of took the, the night was when our kids came and we had Tara Bent and three of the children were there and, and they came and brought that, that gift card for over $500 to help them begin with furnishings and everything. And the neat thing about Habitat is that if, if you want to eventually have a home through Habitat, you have to put in the work ahead of time helping out with other people's homes. And so they had a bunch of the future homeowners that were there. And, and they were in tears when they saw these kids come up and to see the response. And, and it was just one of those moments where all the future homeowners were coming up saying, tell me more about your church. We want to find out more about it. So it was just a really cool thing. So, so we're kind of in this season where we've had a really busy summer. There's been a lot of cool things that have been going on. But we're also beginning to prepare for the fall and launching out some new things that we're looking to, to try to help get people connected this coming fall. And one of the things we've been talking about for a while is that next week we start off a series called Jesus and We, where my favorite thing to talk about all year long is here's the overall vision of what we're trying to accomplish as a church. Next week we'll kick off that series where I get to talk about for a few weeks uh, the overall vision, which remains the same, but some of the processes to get to the vision that will change. Uh, so you want to be here next week as we start off Jesus and We. Uh, but if you're interested in helping us advance that vision, uh, one of the things we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks is uh, this chance to be a group leader or a group host. And, and what that means is that our system of discipleship here at Ridge Point is we try to get people to come into church, but also try to get them connected through family groups that meet in people's homes throughout the week. And so we're looking for more opportunities to be able to host more groups. We have a lot of groups already. We're looking to host some more groups this coming fall as we launch into the new year. And so if you're interested in finding out more information about what that looks like, it doesn't mean that by signing up you're already a group leader or anything like that. 
But if you want to sign up, say, hey, I want to find out more information. Maybe you're in a group right now and saying, I love my group. I don't want to leave right now, but maybe in a year I'll be ready. Or, or maybe you are saying right now, I want to find out more about it. Uh, we're inviting you. We have two, two training sessions coming up. You can come to one or the other. The first one is this coming Wednesday night at 7 o'clock here at the church. And the second one is Sunday, next Sunday after this service. Uh, so immediately following this service, we'll have that second group leaders training. So if you just want to find out more about what the overall vision strategy is for Ridgepoint Church and, and effectively leading or hosting a group, I'd encourage you, Chris is leading that training. Just fill out on your connection card this morning, just say group host or group leader, and Chris will get with you this week, find out which session you're going to, and we'd love to have you. Again, just find out more information about it. But today I get to wrap up what we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks, and that is issues that happen within the church uh, I said this the very first week, and I reiterated it last week, that when the church first began in the book of Acts chapter 2, there's unity. It's, it's not really a huge group of people, but there's unity because they'd encountered Jesus resurrected, and they said, right now, everything else about our life pales in comparison. We've seen Jesus face-to-face. He's alive, and, and that message transformed them. And there's unity, and there's a mission to move forward and to reach people, and they began to reach people at the level of sometimes thousands of people on a daily basis. Well, it doesn't take long if you're growing that exponentially. It doesn't take long until the problems of the culture, as you're reaching people that are in the culture, some of the problems of the culture started to permeate the church. And so they said from time to time, we have to figure out how to take what is, what is timeless truth and relay it to a changing culture. And so times the church throughout the history of the last couple of millennia the churches looked at issues the world is facing, and they said, we have to figure out how to, to deal with this changing culture. And that happens from time to time. The church says, man, there's, there's issues. And it's not that as, as we go into this, it's not that we, we, we want the, 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 the culture to permeate the church so much as we want to set the example for culture, that we want to make sure that we do this thing right. And so we've talked about what that looks like at times at times, the church can get kind of off track and, and try to follow the culture's lead, and that's not what we want. See, here's the thing. I love, like, I, I'm, I'm a people watcher. Is anybody else a people watcher? Like, you just like to watch how people respond to different situations. I just love, like, sitting in an area where there's an open area and people are interacting just to see how people react, how they communicate. Uh, last year, a little bit, a little more than a year ago, I was on our mission trip to Honduras with our team, and, and most of the week is spent really, really working and and building homes and all that stuff, but you get one afternoon, Sunday afternoon after church, to go do some, some sightseeing, some shopping, they have a touristy area called the Valley of the Angels. And, and so we were there, and literally people are there from a, a, across the world, they kind of gather there, they, they have a bunch of shops, it's, it's multiple square block wide area that you go in. And I remember we did a little bit of the shopping, and, and we got done, and, and my, my daughter and I, we kind of broken away from the group, and we sat in the plaza area where everyone's out there and they're having fun and they're dancing and they're having a good time. And we're just sitting there, we're eating ice cream and I'm just enjoying watching people. And you're seeing people from different areas of the world speaking different languages and yet to see their interaction, there were some things that were very similar. And the thing is, is that as you watch people, especially if you become a good observer of people, we realize there are certain ways that we are united and there are certain ways that sometimes that differentiate us. For some people, we're divided based upon we like a particular sports team or we like a particular genre of music or, or we have a, a something, some sort of hobby that we pursue. And so because of that, we tend to gravitate towards those people. And, and, and for others, especially in an area that's as diverse as this Valley of the Angels I was in, 
they're separated based upon their nationality or their skin color or the, the language that they speak. And, and we, have a, we have a tendency to, to have these things that make us different. And one of the things that makes us very different is the way that we react to drama. Now, some people are overly dramatic, and, and when there's drama, they like to add to the drama. When, when there's issues that they're facing, and, 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 and they know like there's issues either I'm dealing with personally or stuff that's happened to me, and, and I want to make sure if I'm in the midst of drama, if that's how this person is, they want to broadcast their drama and make sure everyone's aware of their drama, and their response often makes the drama that much worse. It, it deals with more stuff. Then there's people on the other side who say, man, I don't like drama at all. In fact, I know that there's issues that we're going to face. But I'd rather downplay those issues and not make a big deal when bad stuff happens and, 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 and just kind of deal with it and try to bring those things down and focus on what's really, really important. Well, the thing is that as we look at the church throughout the history of the church, there's times the church has responded in both ways. There's times the church has responded and there's been like this, this, this fire of an emergency and the church doesn't know how to respond and, and, and they respond sometimes out of emotion and, and, and out of anger and, and that's not right. And, and other times the church has said, wait a minute, we need to approach this together and make sure we get this response right because what Neil Dyer said last week was so important that even in an era where it seems like the church is losing its voice a little bit, still when emergencies take place, when culture is grasping at straws trying to figure things out, the world still right now is looking at the church in the midst of the problems saying, church, how are you going to respond to these issues? How are you going to deal with this? And so we have to be so careful when we face what, what it's not so much that we want what's happening out in the world. It's not that we as a church want to emulate the world, but that we want to set culture's example. That the world is looking at us right now in the midst of some really volatile issues, one of which we're going to approach in a subtle way this morning. The, church is, the world's looking at the church saying, church, what's the answer in this situation? How are you supposed to respond? And our response is really, really important. And here's where we get ourselves in trouble. Through the years when the church has added, acted in a dramatic way, when we've gotten this wrong, it's normally one of three things. When we're mishandling issues, one of three things happens. The first one is when I focus on my opinion at the expense of truth. Now, all three of these are going to be important with what we talk about in just a little bit, but let's focus on each of these individually. When I focus on my opinion rather than truth, how many of you right now would say that you have feelings? We all do. How many have an opinion about something? We all do. Often, our opinion is based upon our feelings, not always, but often, because we're emotional beings. We have emotion, and, and our emotion often drives our opinions. And, and that can be valuable, and it can be invaluable at the same time. It can hurt us and help us at the same time. Because if I'm like a normal human being, if I'm going through life, I have every day has its ups and downs. Most of our days look something like this. There's some good things that happen, and we feel good about those things. And there's bad things that happen, and we feel bad. And, and when a bunch of bad things happen successively, we start to lose confidence. But when a bunch of good things happen, when I, start to have a bunch of, when I start to have a bunch of victories in my life, when I go to work and my boss notices the work that I've done and is paying me a compliment, and maybe with that there comes a raise, and, and my kids are behaving, and, and all these things that I want to line up start to line up. Well, then I start to have confidence that can sometimes lead to overconfidence. 
Because my feelings get in the way of my opinion, I start to think, man, I'm indestructible. I'm doing everything right. In fact, I think right now, as high as I'm flying, I think if I jump off the stage, I could literally fly. And then I go and try it, which I'm not going to do right now. But I go and I try that, and I realize gravity had a real reaction to what I thought was truth. Gravity was truth, and my emotions got in the way. And gravity brought me literally back down to earth. So I can't just trust my opinions or, or my emotions because sometimes those things I know, those things are, are tainted. The second thing that sometimes gets us in trouble is because we believe, okay, we have to have an objective measure of truth. And I believe there is an objective measure of truth. I believe that God is a loving God, that he cares about us. And so because of that, he's said, I don't want to leave you alone. I want to leave you with truth. And there's objective measure of truth. But the second one is when I misapply truth. I believe that when, when God has given us this, this is absolute truth. But throughout the history of the church, there have been times, and, and Neil alluded to this last week, that, that we kind of come with our maybe a political opinion or, or just the way society's always been, and we say, well, this is the way that I think because of my opinion things are supposed to be, so let me go find a verse to proof text what I already believe. And that's a very dangerous place to be. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. But that's a dangerous place because I'm saying I'm starting with my opinion, number one. And now let me find a verse or two that matches up to my opinion and let's run with that. And throughout the history of the church, the church has done damage to individuals. They've judged people wrongly saying, well, I found this verse back in Leviticus that I think should apply to this situation. And don't get me wrong, all of the Bible is true. But sometimes when it's misapplied and, and mishandled, it leaves us in a, in a dangerous spot. There's, there's a verse in the New Testament, Paul's writing to the early church, and he writes and he, he has this verse where it talks about women, you're not supposed to have your hair braided. And right away we read that and say, wait a minute, does that mean that if I, had, if I was a woman I had my hair braided, was that, was that wrong, was that sinful? But, but we have to understand when it was written, the culture it was written to. In their culture, what would often happen is the women who were wealthy would inlay strands of gold within their braids to show off how wealthy they were. So Paul wasn't writing as, as a way of saying that braiding your hair is wrong. That wasn't the point. It's saying that we go, when we go around flaunting our, our wealth or flaunting uh, who we are in culture, that that's, so we have to be careful when people read Scripture to understand where Scripture is written, why Scripture is written, who it was written to, and make sure that we apply it in the way it's supposed to be applied. The third thing that gets us in error or in danger of mishandling issues is when I confuse my traditions with actual authority. Now, I want to say this before I get into this part of the conversation. There are some tremendous traditions. And, and today we stand where we stand as a church individually because more than a decade ago, a group of people got together and said, we want to make some changes to really engage our culture and to do things differently. And today, in a small way, we stand on their shoulders, but in a much greater way, we stand on the shoulders of, of men and women who throughout the last 2,000 years have said, this is what the church should be about. And so we never want to belittle the tradition that's gotten us here, but if we hold on to something just because that's the way it's always been done, then sometimes it stops us from dealing with where culture is today. Back in the early 1900s, there was a movement that was started. 
because culture was saying, hey, there's a need for better education within the church. So they started the Sunday school movement. Many of us could remember when we were younger going to Sunday school. About a decade ago, they said, Richmond Church, that's, that's not really our, our strategy anymore. We're going to move to groups. And it isn't that one is right and one, that one is wrong. It just is they're different philosophies. And there's nothing grounded in Scripture that says one or the other is right. And yet when you make a change like that, there's a certain segment that says, wait a minute, you can't do church without Sunday school, or you can't do church, which I've heard in my life, you can't do church without, you can't worship without an organ in the church. We, we don't have one of those. We're in trouble. But sometimes we hold on to traditions as a measure of authority simply because it's the way it's always been done. And so in particular, as we approach this topic, I want to challenge us because any one of us could take our emotions or they can take misapplied scripture or they can take our traditions and say, well, based upon those things, this is what we've always kind of done or how we've always kind of got ourselves. And, and as we approach what is a delicate topic, I want to say, listen, we want to make sure as a church that we get this right. And I'm going to lay the foundation for where we're going. This is, this is one of those topics we want to handle delicately and yet uh, handle it truthfully at the same time. When it comes to today's issues, the church doesn't want to emulate culture, but it does want to set culture's example. And so we're going to get into a discussion today because I believe that as the world deals with issues, eventually they permeate the church and we have to address them. And so today there's, there's, there's been this underlying question for a while, okay, the way culture's headed, what does that mean in particular to the role of women in leadership in the church? And that's, to me, that's a powerful question for today. And there are some people who, as soon as I ask that question, because we're all from different backgrounds and different, even, even different church backgrounds, some say, that's not a big deal. Like, we've already figured that out. And others are on the edge of the seat saying, man, I've always kind of wondered about this. What, what are we going to say? How are we going to approach this? And so I want to do something. I want to begin by laying the foundation, because this is something that isn't new. The church has been talking about this particular topic almost from the very beginning. We're going to lay a foundation and say, this is what the early church did. But before we get there, I want to talk about here's as the church has processed through 2,000 years of sometimes getting it right and sometimes getting it wrong. They've kind of fallen into two schools, and they said, as, as we try to deal with this issue, there's two schools. And I'm not one to often use like big words, get bogged down in big words. But in order to define kind of where we're at, I'm going to give you these two words. Before I do that, about a year ago, there was a book written where there were four believers in, in leadership coming from the different perspectives, from these two different perspectives. And they sat down to write a book together. They sat down to have a lunch together. And they agreed before they sat down, they said there's two things we're going to agree upon. Number one is that no matter what happens, we leave this lunch as friends. That's amazing in our culture. That we can say we can disagree with each other and still be friends. I think we need more of that. Uh, we've gotten the people who, when I mentioned earlier, the people who like drama, their, their view of drama is, here's, I'm going to let you know what I think, and once I let you know what I think, there's one of two responses. Either you're going to agree with me, or we're not friends anymore. It's okay for us to have a discussion as, as valuable as this, and to say, man, because the second side of the discussion that they said we have to agree upon is that there's good biblical support within regular Christianity for both of these sides, so they said, even though I come with, this is where I sit, this is where I reside, there's good support on both sides. And if I take away the emotion and I just take away my opinion and, and misapplication of Scripture, I can come and I can figure this thing out. 
My goal is when I give you these two sides, not to sway you one way or another, to paint both of these equally because within the, the realm of Christianity, both of these are, are, are valid opinions and they both have strength and weight to them to give the pluses and minuses of both, but then to build the tension to where we're going. A different, probably a different message than, than I've ever been, been able to deliver, but something I've been praying about, studying about for the last year and a half because I believe it's, it's that big a topic, more so the last couple of months. So let me introduce you to the, to the two ideas. Again, not to get bogged down in the two words, but, or, or these two big words, but the first view is complementarianism. A complementarian believes that men and women are of equal value, but have distinct differences when it comes to roles in their homes, societies, and churches. So literally the complementary idea is that we're, we're equally of value, but we're different so that we complement each other. Would be there would, would be kind of where they come from, and they're saying within home societies and churches, we're focused on church today. So there's a couple of verses that they kind of jump to, and they say, "Here's why we think there's a limitation to the roles that, that people can play, in particular the role that women can play within leadership." There's one verse of two that they normally jump to, and that verse at first sounds a little bit harsh. First Timothy chapter two, verse twelve. Paul's writing to Timothy, addressing an issue within the church at Ephesus, and he says this. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over men. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So we read that, and, and, and again, I, I caution us against like proof texting, which is what this is, but that's what they'll do. They'll look at that and say, hey, wait a minute, but what do you do about that verse? Now, I come saying I believe all Scripture is inspired by God, and it's profitable, and it's supposed to, to benefit us, but also we have to understand the, the, what's happening right now as Paul's writing this letter and, and also what's happening in society, and I think it's important to paint both sides of that. Because even though we read that, and it seems like a very definitive statement, there's a couple of things we have to note. Uh, one is, is that it's written to a specific church issue that's happening within a church in a city called Ephesus. And so Paul's writing, Paul doesn't write this language to other places, even though he has a chance to do that. He doesn't do that. And in particular, as he writes this, we also see evidence in what Paul writes and what the other New Testament writers write where that's simply not the case, that women are often in leadership positions. We can't just discount any verse in Scripture, but as we look at this, we see women that are serving, where actually back then they didn't have churches like this where people could come and gather, so they're meeting in people's homes. And there are women who were the leaders in the church who opened up their homes and say, come meet in my, in my home. They're the hosts within the church. They're deacons within the church. They're serving in a leadership capacity. They're prophets within the church. Well, if we look at this as just a, a wholesale statement to say, this is it. Well, earlier and later, they talk about women being prophets, and obviously they're not going to be quiet in that position. Even more telling, there's an incredible passage in Acts chapter 18. Beginning in verse 24, it says this. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But, and this is where we want to focus on, when Priscilla and Aquila, who are a husband and wife team, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him or literally taught him the way of God. 
And eventually it says later on that, that he, they, they, he learns it more accurately and, and he comes, he teaches the, the fullness of who Jesus is from that point. But the point being, you have a husband and wife, Priscilla and Aquila, who it says collectively come and teach someone who's a leader within the church. So we look at that and say, okay, how does that, because we have to, if we're going to be focused on this topic, we have to compare truth with truth. And, and, and what does this one verse say compared to what does complete scripture say? Well, here we have an instance where a husband and wife team say, we're going to together help teach a person who's a leader within the church to make sure he gets it right, to make sure he teaches with absolute authority of knowing the complete truth of who Jesus was. And so even though, and, and I said this as we approach this, my goal is not to sway you one way or another, but to say, man, both sides have, uh, have some scriptural support. Both sides have their challenges. And so to say, here's one view, here's a complementary view, which a lot of people hold to. And then there's another view, the egalitarian view. The official egalitarian view, they, they got together and said, this is really what we think or what we believe, is that all believers, without regard to gender, ethnicity, or class, must exercise their God-given gifts with, with equal authority and equal responsibility in church, home, and world. So the egalitarian view would just say, hey, like God gifts us and you're supposed to exercise that gift regardless of your, your gender, your class, your ethnicity. Those things aren't supposed to come in the way. And, and they would use a verse like Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 that says, there's neither Jew nor Greek there's neither slave nor free. There's no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And you look at that and say, well, that's right. We're all equal. And both sides would argue that, that they're equal, but they say this is what that verse means, which, which is a little bit kind of twist that to, to fit their, what they're talking about. But they say, but what about that verse? How do we deal with that? And, and so, so literally we look at a topic that's really, really important. And we want to make sure that we get this right. And here's the thing. There are incredible believers on both sides of this topic. And, and, and I've, I've read a ton of people over the last couple of years. And, and, and my goal when it comes to this topic, because there's so many good scripture on both sides, and, and it's, I can't do it justice in, in a 40-minute sermon, but to really study that out and, and figure out where you lie. And so, okay, I want to make sure that in, in my belief system that I get this right. But my goal in this message isn't just to deal with that. I think that's a topic that's appropriate to talk about, but I think there's even a bigger issue that we have to deal with. And that's because we struggle with this sometimes. The baggage that gets associated with that on both sides, on one or the other, because one seems more favorable than the other, but the baggage that I've seen on both sides can be damaging to the idea that we're going to lay out later on that, that Jesus was incredibly involving of, of using women to, to be a part of leadership and ministry, that the early church did the same thing, and that I think personally, having studied this out, there are people that are on both sides of this topic that get this wrong. And to build that tension, why I think that's important, I want to read something that was read fairly recently. And this really precipitated why I said, man, we need to talk about this issue right now. There's a famous Bible teacher named Beth Moore. How many are familiar with Beth Moore? A lot of people at least know the name or are familiar with her. Incredible teacher. She does some incredible conferences. And, and the thing is, is that I've read some of her story before, and, and, and she mostly speaks at these women conferences, and she's really, really just an incredible speaker. But I read her story, and in this letter that she wrote, she wrote a letter just in the last couple of months, uh, a letter to her brothers within the church. And in it, she talks about, the beginning of the letter talks about some of the stuff she faced 
especially early on in ministry. How she faced, like she wanted to get in and, and really study scripture and, and she found herself that she'd go to seminary and the seminaries that she was at, they said, you can't take some of those classes. Those classes, only men are allowed to go to those classes. Only men take that stuff seriously and, and you don't. And so she was stopped from some of the education that she sought out. Uh, she was made fun of from time to time and people holding her back from opportunities. And she said over the years that kept getting better and better. And she's had, I mean, she has an international audience now. She's doing incredible stuff. But then she writes this, which kind of was a turning point of the letter. She says this. Then early 2016, surfaced attitudes among some key Christian leaders that smacked of misogyny, objectification, and astonishing disesteem of women, and it spread like wildfire. It was just the beginning I came face to face with one of the most demoralizing realizations of my adult life. Scripture was not the reason for the colossal disregard and disrespect of women among many of these men. It was only the excuse. Sin was the reason, she said. Ungodliness. And she says, this is where I cry foul. And not for my own sake. Most of my life is behind me. I do so for sake of my gender. For the sake of our sisters in Christ and for the sake of other female leaders who will be faced with similar challenges. I do so for the sake of my brothers because Christ-likeness is at stake. And many of you are in positions to foster Christ-likeness in your sons and in the men under your influence. The dignity with which Christ treated women in the Gospels is fiercely beautiful and was not conditional upon their understanding their place. And then she shared this story about a year ago. I had an opportunity to meet a theologian I'd, I'd long respected. I'd read virtually every book he'd written. I'd looked so forward to getting to share a meal with him and talk theology. The instant I met him, though, he looked me up and down, smiled approvingly, and said, you are better looking than, and she left that name blank. But she said, he didn't leave that name blank. He mentioned another female Bible teacher. He filled it in with the name of, of that female Bible teacher. The letter went on from there, and I'll be honest, when I read that, like, like my heart broke, because here's someone who has this international ministry who's, and she says, this is the stuff that I've dealt with. And I'm convinced that through the last couple of millennia, whether intentional or not, there are a lot of people who've experienced similar hurts and similar heartaches and say, man, I want to be a part of moving God's kingdom forward and advancing God's kingdom. But I've been held back, and I've said that I can't because, simply because of the gender that I have or, or even the, the culture that I come from or the ethnicity that I have, that, that the church has allowed these things to hold people back. And so regardless of which side that we come at from the, the two perspectives that I noted earlier, we have to agree that, man, stuff like this isn't okay. It's not right. And so regardless of which side we fall on, there are six things I think that we can agree upon. I want to run through these six things real quick. The first thing that we can agree upon is that Jesus went against his culture in engaging the women of his society. Like for, for, for him, when he was alive, this would have been against every one of the societal norms. But when he goes to have a conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well, everything about culture said he should not be talking to her. But Jesus went out of his way to, to lift up, to value the women that he came in contact with and to engage them in valuable conversation. Whereas the other men might have held them back and said, that's, that's men talk, that's what we talk about. Jesus said, no, 
We're going to have that conversation. And she's going to go and share what we talk about with her own people. Jesus valued the role of women. He engaged them in conversation. The second thing is that Jesus treated women with an uncommon dignity. And even involved them in ministry. We see this, so Jesus had the disciples. We see this, numerous names we could mention throughout the New Testament, where Jesus not only engages them in discussion, but starts to say, hey, I want you to be a part of this leadership team, and we're going to reach the world, we're going to do incredible things. And in fact, the most important event the world's ever seen is the resurrection of Jesus. The most important, most crucial event the world's ever seen, and the very first eyewitnesses to that event were women, which is telling on one side because all of the men of that era wouldn't take the opinion of a woman or the eyewitness of a woman to be verifiable if it was something that was needed in court. They weren't deemed high enough. They were devalued so lowly that their opinion was never sought out. But Jesus says, I value their opinion, and I'm going to allow them to be the very first eyewitnesses to the greatest event the world's ever seen. In fact, the first word Jesus spoke after that resurrection was the word woman. Jesus valued women. Jesus allowed them to be part of advancing that kingdom. Number three, as the early church rises, women start to take on a leadership role within the church. They served as hosts within the church. They met within their homes. They served as as instructors. They served as deacons. Maybe even, some people think there's even a passage that talks about one of them being an apostle within the church. The early church starts to recognize that, and yet somehow, through the years, I think that we've gone back and we've gravitated back towards a position where maybe everyone got a little more comfortable, and we've gotten away from the approach of the early church of saying, man, we want to involve everybody in the process of building up God's kingdom. It wasn't just in the the New Testament early church, though. Women throughout Scripture and history play a vital role in advancing God's kingdom, they served as prophets, they served as judges, they served as queens. They had so much value. But here's the thing, and here's where the rubber starts to meet the road, is the fifth thing we can agree upon is this. Both sides at times have, te- have tended towards a patriarchal view of women in leadership that is unhealthy. Both sides have done this. See, it's easy. I think some people in in, in error to be more accepted, they say, I I want to take a side that's less threatening, that that seems more accommodating, and and say, take one side just because it seems less threatening. But I read a story that blew my mind this week. There's a a church that that took more of the the second view of of the way things were, and the woman can serve in any capacity, and they had a woman that was invited to be the lead pastor of their church. But when their leadership team met, when their leadership council met, she was never invited to be part of that leadership team. At times, we've all been part of cultures, whether it's at work, whether it's in community, that has taken this very uh, paternalistic view of, of the way things are supposed to be. And, and we've seen that throughout history, that in the church, that has at times been very healthy and something had to be addressed. And the final thing, and this, this is it, this is what we want to get to. If we say... And this isn't just Ridgepoint Church, but I'm saying the church in general in our world. If, if I could give a word right now to, to the Beth Morris who feel like, man, I've been hurt. I've been torn down because of the stuff that I've dealt with in my life. If I could get one word out to the person right now, if that's you, if you've been hurting, if you feel like, man, my voice hasn't been heard. If we say we want the church to advance, 
and we disallow more than half of its people from being invited to the leadership table, then we're lying. See, I think most of us would say the church in general, the church in our country, the church in the world, the world, the church wants to advance. But the numbers tell us that overwhelmingly, it's more women coming to church than there are men. And then we say, but, but we're going to disallow, we want y'all to come to church, but when it comes to leadership stuff, y'all aren't invited to do this. If we say that, then we're lying. Come on, someone's got to get excited for me this morning. Like, this is a, this is a big deal. And I'm not saying it's easy, and, and, and it's, it's easy to navigate or to figure out the way for us to do this right. But when we see it wrong, when we see someone that's torn down and, and, and has done this incredible work, and the only thing the first person that views them, this incredible theologian views them, is because of the way that they look. Something just isn't right. Something's still broken. And this is a problem right now that is happening in the culture that's out there. And the culture is looking at us. So, okay, we know this is in the culture, and if it's in the culture, it's happening. I saw this just recently within a major denomination within our, within our country, where the, the stuff that's happening in the world out there started to affect the leadership within the church. And they had to deal with it. And we can do like we've often been accused of or sometimes tended towards and just sweep things under the rug and, and say, hey, let's pretend there's nothing here and everything's okay. But at some point, if we're serious about advancing what God is doing, we say, man, we want to we figure this thing out. So a couple of months ago, I did something that, that I wasn't sure how it was going to turn out. But I sent out an email to about 20 women within the church at Ridgepoint. And I said, hey, I just want to know, ask them five questions. The first two related to what have been your experiences? If, if you've gone to a church prior to Ridgepoint, what were your experiences as a woman? Not give me details about what church that was, but what were the experiences that you dealt with? And then also the last three questions dealt with what has been your experience here at Ridgepoint and what can we do to help that? The thing was, was that I asked a, a broad variety of people, and I got a broad variety of answers. And I promised them a couple of things. I promised absolute anonymity. I wouldn't mention even who I sent the emails to. But I asked to be able to share, unless they had something where they wanted to tell me and not tell everybody else, I said, can I share kind of the findings of that? And also, if there's specific things I want to share about that, that I have the freedom to be able to do that. And as you can expect, if, if you ask 20 different people, what, what are your experiences and and, and sometimes they could have the same experience, but approach it from a different perspective. There are a lot of different, different inputs. Uh, there's a couple I'm going to note in just a second. For the most part, it was either I didn't really have much of a church background prior to Ridgepoint. Uh, a lot said I, I never really felt like devalued. I didn't, wasn't really part of leadership, but I didn't really necessarily feel devalued. Uh, some said, yeah, like, like I, there's a couple that came and said I, I was part of, they asked me my opinion on things, and as soon as I gave my opinion, they just kind of ran it over and said, we're going to do this anyway. We just wanted to act like we were asking your opinion. The harder part was asking, okay, what has been your experience at Ridgepoint? And, and people were much more gracious about their experience at Ridgepoint. I don't know if that was just because they were talking to me or not. Um, but, but most said, no, my experience at Ridgepoint has been starkly different. Uh, the path of leadership still can be a challenging one. But there are two things in particular that I noted about their response. Um, 
Not that anything could be summarized in, in findings because they were kind of so kind of all over the place in their experiences. But two things that I noted, some had expressed that not only, not only had they felt not listened to because of their gender, but also because of their age, they're relatively young. Their youthfulness got in the way and in their perspective of people taking their decisions seriously. A number of them just kind of said, hey, yeah, I, there's been times I've been a part of teams and, and I've kind of shared input and it wasn't taken as maybe as, as much as the others, but I felt like I was, I was young and I was female. So for both of those things, I kind of felt like my opinion was devalued a little bit. The second one, and this was also very interesting to see the feedback. Some also said the glass ceiling they were experiencing was one that had been perhaps embedded by culture, but accepted by them as the way things were supposed to be or always would be. The culture begins at home, feeling like they have to be silent about important things at home and leave the important things to the men. A number expressed that. I found that interesting that they said, you know, I hadn't really thought about it a whole lot because that's how culture has kind of always been. And so when I saw it happening in the church, I didn't really think much about that. And here's the thing, when I, when I read things like that, when I read the, the blog that, that Beth Moore posted, I say, man, we're still doing something wrong if that's the response that we're getting. And it's not that we're always going to get this right, because the final question that I asked was, okay, after you're given experiences, what steps can we take to help alleviate this, to, to do this better? And whereas they're often very insightful and, and bold in the first four questions, the last one was the toughest one, saying, I don't know, it's not really that easy. Like, I don't know how to deal with that. And so one of the things that as, as we're leaving, asking the, the question, what does that mean for us? Because I think this is a, a topic that is valuable in the church. But it's something that's incredibly, I, I, can't, I can't affect the whole church. But I can begin a discussion here as Ridgepoint Church to make sure if there's stuff we've done wrong in the past about this, to make sure that we get this right and, and to, to deal with that. Whereas culture right now is fragmented by this, we say, man, we have to take the lead. There's one person who shared this. Women have to start believing that they are leaders. Also, the definition of leadership might need a little revamping. Some of the most spiritual people I know are women. They're fundamentally tuned into God. They may not give sermons, but they live their daily lives guided by God. They're spiritual role models, and we need them woven into our daily lives to, to, to keep us grounded. I agree 100%. Some of the most spiritual people we have at Ridgepoint Church are, are, are the women who come here on a regular basis. Some of the best leaders we have are the women that serve here. And so it becomes our responsibility to say, man, if we're serious about this idea, to, to, man, we want to stay true to Scripture. I don't want to get away from that. But there's, there's a lot of good people on both sides that say, here's Scripture of this and here's Scripture on that. But we want to make sure that regardless of where we fall in terms of falling into those two categories, we want to make sure that we get this right, to make sure that God's kingdom is advanced and that we're utilizing the, the best resources we have to make that happen. And so if that's where you've been, if, if you're a woman and you feel like, man, because of what society has done, because of what culture has done, I felt devalued. Because of what the church has done, I felt devalued that there wasn't a place for me. I want to apologize to you for that. That's not how the church should be. If you've dealt with hurt in the past, again, I apologize for whatever that was that you dealt with. 
but to say, man, it is our firm belief that if we're going to advance forward as a church, as, as, as doing what we're called to do, it, in, it requires every one of us, 100% of us, being a part of God's mission. Not to have someone devalued because of the background that they come from, because of the gender or the color of the skin or, or, or the nationality or, or, or how much money they have. All those things in God's kingdom didn't, didn't matter. If we're going to be the church God calls us to be, it requires some difficult conversations. I knew going into this, I'm like, man, this is going to be a heavy one. I want to make sure I handle this delicately. But to make sure, because when we read the book of Acts, they dealt with difficult issues. But as they got done with dealing with those issues, they said, we want to make sure that we take a biblical approach to this. We want to make sure that we get this right. But that when we leave this discussion, which is a very tender discussion, it's a discussion that's happening in our world and our culture right now. As we leave that discussion, we do so. United, saying we now have the mission, which we get a chance to be in talking about next week. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the way that you pursue us. And God, I know that, that, that in a room this size with as many people as we've had in both services this morning, there's probably a lot of opinions, there's probably a lot of emotion about this topic. God, I thank you that you've given us a form, a platform to have a discussion to talk about what I think is a really, really important, if tender, topic. God, you pursue us today, regardless of our gender. You pursue us today, regardless of our nationality, regardless of our skin color. You pursue us today, regardless of the sin that wrecked our life before this moment. You pursue us because every person has value. God, I pray that as a church, we emulate not what the world is doing now, but we emulate ministry as Jesus did it. God, we believe that following Jesus makes our lives better, but that it also makes us better at life. And God, this is one of those things where we just have to follow him better. God, we have to get in tune with, with your character. And as we get in tune with your character, you start to reveal to us what it means more and more to truly follow you. God, let us do that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.